Hello, and welcome to my Module 2 film journal. In this entry, I'll be referencing several of the films from Module 2, all of which were created by Native filmmakers and include largely Native casts. I'll be examining the ways in which some of these films talk back to the Hollywood Indian, which we explored in Module 1, and how some filmmakers succeed at talking back while others are entrapped by it. I'll also delve into how these films and their makers create room for cultural sovereignty in an industry that operates largely around predictable stereotypes and formulaic genres. The first thing I noticed and appreciated about these Module 2 films was that they are all set in the last 20 years or so. They all show Native people living their lives in the modern world, beginning with Once Were Warriors, the first film in this module. We see Maori people in a contemporary urban setting. This alone is different from Module 1 films, most of which were set in the wilderness and the historic past. We see the ways in which the Maori characters maintain their ancestral knowledge, rituals, and language, but we also see how they've shifted from them. The film may be considered problematic at times because it portrays Maori people in a negative light, but it's also important to remember that it was created by Maori people, and they have a right to express their stories in any way they choose. It's an intense film, but I think that was part of the aim of the film, to make the viewer feel what the characters feel. Another film from this module, Smoke Signals, gives us another contemporary look at the lives of Native people, this time on the Coeur d'Alene Reservation, as well as on the road between Idaho and Arizona during their road trip. Seeing how the two main characters, Thomas and Victor, deal with generational and personal trauma makes for a dramatic film arc, but it still has plenty of humor strewn throughout. This is another way that Chris Ayer and Sherman Alexie talk back to the Hollywood Indian, by giving their Native characters good senses of humor. The film does, however, fall into the trap of talking back at times with the overt discussion between T Thomas and Victor about what it means to be an Indian, and Victor trying to convince Thomas that, the, that he should look like the stereotypical Hollywood Indian by being stoic and taking the braids out of his hair, looking like he just came back from killing a buffalo. Even though Thomas reminds them that their people were fishermen, not buffalo hunters, which is a bit of humor showing through. The film also addresses the drunken Indian stereotype by showing the damage done by Victor's father's alcohol abuse, but it also shows that Thomas and Victor never drink alcohol at all. Four Sheets to the Wind was one of my favorite films in this module, directed by one of the best filmmakers in the business, Sterling Harjo. This film talks back to the Hollywood Indian by barely even acknowledging it. This film shows Koofy Smallhill, played by Cody Lightning, just living his life after his father dies. He abides by his father's wishes, puts his body in the lake, and later fakes a funeral so others won't be upset. The most overt instance of talking back was when a white local tells the native women at the funeral that he is one-eighth Cherokee, which is why he was so talented at painting the casket, which is covered in generic, stereotypical, quote-unquote, native art. The film features a voiceover in Muskogee Creek by Richard Way Whitman, who plays Frankie, Koofy's father, and who also shows up in several of Harjo's other films. His voiceover comes and goes throughout the film, importantly opening and closing it, thereby asserting the importance of storytelling by weaving the film's story together, and also emphasizing Frankie's continued existence and influence on the lives of his family, even after his death. 
Featuring the Muskogee Creek language throughout the film is not a gimmick, as it sometimes was in the movies we watched in Module 1. And speaking of language, we learned that the film's title comes from the time when Frankie and Cora first met. Cora, in present day, tells Koofy that when they met, she asked Frankie his name, and he told her it was Four Sheets to the Wind. In our reading, titled People Come Around in Circles, the author offers the analysis that Frankie naming himself is his way of taking quote, control of his own identity, and it defies both Hollywood and a long tradition of American Indians being forced to take common English language given names, as was done commonly in Indian boarding schools as a means of killing the Indian to save the man, unquote. This insight presents us with both a humorous take on slang for being drunk and Frankie's assertion of his agency and autonomy, both of which deviate from the Hollywood construction of Native men, Hardware's ability to subvert false narratives while inserting humor is part of what makes him such a great filmmaker. One of the most exciting things about this module for me was finally seeing Native women in lead roles. For all of its faults, Once Were Warriors is led by a strong female lead who is the hero of the story, the character of Beth, played by Rena Owen. Falls Around Her also featured a, f- a strong female lead, the character of Mary Birchbark, played by the incredible Tantu Cardinal. Falls Around Her also did a great job of including the land and water as characters in the film, with shots of Mary walking through the trees, but also with shots of just the water running under the ice, or shots of wind rustling treetops. Mary's relationship with her family and friends includes her relationship with the land. The movie was filmed on location in Whitefish Lake First Nation, and the beauty of the film is equaled by the talent on and off screen. The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open was written, directed, and acted by Native women, a point driven home by the fact that, although three men appear in the film, none of their faces are discernible. This tactic was effective in centering the women and their experiences because of the filmmaking techniques used, specifically the fact that apart from the first few minutes, the entire movie was shot in one continuous take. Because we as viewers are watching the two women in real time, the fact that we never see the faces of Rosie's boyfriend or Isla's neighbor or the cab driver don't come across as overt omissions, but rather just the focus is naturally on Rosie and Isla. This film also highlights the vast differences of experiences that Native women face, while with Isla being an educated, upper-class woman with the means to get an IUD, while Rosie is just out of foster care, pregnant, and living with an abusive boyfriend. They're both Native women living in Vancouver, but they are worlds apart. All of these representations of Native women are important because none of them fit into earlier Hollywood stereotypes, and although they all deal with violence against women in various ways, They all also show how the women survive, and in most cases, how they thrive. When considering the question of whether we can begin to think about a Native film aesthetic, I keep coming back to the question of, should we? It's important for Native films to be seen and Native stories to be told, but trying to fit them all into one single box may not be appropriate or even useful. The films from this module have come from the US, Canada, and New Zealand, and this is just a small sample of the many native films and filmmakers that are out there, and even these few films vary greatly from one another. The films all come from filmmakers who belong to so many different native nations located around the world with distinct languages and land bases, I don't think we can lump them all together into a single genre, because they don't all follow the same formula. 
but not like Bollywood films, for example, which all come from Mumbai and feature Hindi-speaking actors, usually including a song and dance number at least once. But there are things that unite all, all of the Module 2 films, the importance of land and language, the tradition of storytelling, and movement through generational trauma. Many of these films from Module 2 center around the loss of an important figure in the lives of the main characters. And once for Warriors, we see how the family members deal with Grace's suicide. In Smoke Signals, we see how the losses of Victor's dad and both of Thomas's parents have affected both the boys and the people around them. Four Sheets to the Wind opens on the death of Frankly, Frankie and centers around how his family deals with that. Kiss by Lightning um, shows Mavis grieving over her dead husband, Jesse, which rules her life. Dealing with death and or the absence of loved ones features heavily in many of these films. Several of the films connect the deaths and absences with generational trauma, either overtly or not so overtly, but I don't know if we could say that loss is part of a native film aesthetic. I also wonder about which films would even qualify as being native films. If a film is written by a native writer, if it's directed by a native director, if the, story, if the actors are native, do all of these need to be true or just one or two? Thinking about Taika Waititi, for instance, he is a famous Maori filmmaker who's made lots of great films, from What We Do in the Shadows and Boy to Eagle vs. Shark and Hunt for the Wilder People, but he's also made Jojo Rabbit, a film about a boy living in Nazi Germany. He also directed The Mandalorian and Thor. Do all of these count as native films because they were directed by a native director, or only the ones that he wrote and directed? But even that would include Jojo Rabbit, which, to the best of my knowledge, featured no native on-screen talent other than Taika himself, playing the part of Hitler. So the answer to which films do or don't qualify as native films has to be pinned down first, I think, before we can decide if there is a native film aesthetic. Or maybe I have it backwards, maybe if we figure out what a native film aesthetic looks like, then we can easily categorize films as native films or non-native films. But to be honest, I don't really know if it's necessary. While it may be beneficial to have a category specifically dedicated to native films, it may also lead to pigeonholing films and filmmakers. We've seen dramas and comedies, and we're about to see some sci-fi and futuristic movies, all made by native filmmakers and featuring on-screen native talent. Do they all need to fit into one single aesthetic to be considered native films? This is a question I've been thinking about these last few weeks, and I still don't really have any answers. It's all worth mentioning uh, that if a native film aesthetic is to be defined, I don't think I'm the one to do it. I think it should probably be native filmmakers who define for themselves what their aesthetic is and what it looks like, or even if there is one single native aesthetic. Either way, I look forward to watching more native-led films, so I'm excited for Module 3. Thank you for listening.